Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Welcome. Another great episode of Tech Talk and another great Atlanta technology company. Um, we have a singular guest with us today as opposed to our normal two to three. So we have all of our attention focused um, on one really, really interesting fintech company, uh, Brian Lanehart, the chief technology officer and co-founder of Moment. Brian, how are you? Pretty good. Glad to be here, Joey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and ever everyone following at home, Moment is spelled without vowels. Vowels and, are expensive. Yes. <laughs> well, no, wait. We have an O, don't we? We have one O. The yes. Expensive, yes. Know. Just just one vowel. Right. M O M. N-T, if you want to follow along and look them up. So let's first begin with a high-level overview of what does Moment do? Sure. Uh, so Moment is a financial services platform. Um, today, we'll, the financial service we're offering to consumers, merchants, and our FIs, our lending partners, is consumer unsecured installment loans. So the basic use case is pretty simple. Everyone's familiar with home improvement comes to your house. You want to remodel your kitchen. How would you like to pay for it? Cash? Do you have a, do you have a budget? We can offer you financing. So Moment is the platform, the financial services platform that sits between the merchants, the consumers, and the lenders. And it's very turnkey. So when the lenders on board with us, we take their risk uh, matrix and we customize the program for them, making sure they get the right consumers, the right types of merchants, the right programs, subprograms, think home improvement, um, interiors for program, subprogram kind of thing, the right loan products, things of that nature. Okay, so so let's... Let's talk about a use case. Okay, so I'm I'm remodeling my home. Okay, mm-hmm, and right. someone says it's you know it's going to be hundred thousand dollars. I said, oof, really don't want to pay in cash that right now. I would like to finance that, uh, as opposed to me shopping around and going to B of A and Wells Fargo and Citibank, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It sounds like this is a much more user friendly, quicker platform than the lengthy underwriting process of all of those financial institutions. That's exactly right. So let me ask you this. Is the ultimate provider of the loan, those financial to financial institutions anyway, it's, it's essentially the moment is sitting in between and taking over the verification and underwriting process? That's correct. So okay. the, the lenders in that concept will subscribe to our underwriting policies. We can create a policy for them. Um, we can customize the policy. We can take their policy, whatever it may be. But they're subscribing to those policies. And then we find merchants and consumers that fit, that fit that risk matrix and then sort of hook them up. Okay, so I guess the value add to the provider of debt is that you are probably getting to access a wider audience than they traditionally would. The In addition to the fact that you're taking off some of the admin and back office mm-hmm. from them. And to those that are taking out a loan, um, again, a much easier, more seamless process where, I mean, I'm crude example potentially, but almost like a price line, right? Where it is immediately connecting to a number of different sources or vendors. It is. The, um, the way we talk about it, so from the lender's perspective, we come in two flavors. We act as portfolio distribution partners. So they'll say there's $200 million, $500 million sitting in this account that will be aggregated towards this risk matrix. And so we act as distribution partners. We pull that money into the markets they couldn't necessarily have reached to. So local community banks, regional banks that have national charters but can't get to the West Coast, for mm. example. We have that merchant network. We're facilitating those, those relationships to help spread that money across it. The other flavor is they can white-label the whole program. So if they want to offer it exclusively to their commercial customers, for example, we can white-label the whole thing, still turnkey for them. Sure, okay. It makes it seem like... 
you know, community credit of Omaha is the one that has come up with this technology as opposed yes, to. It could be. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, uh, to, let's, I'm interested in the, the verification and underwriting process. Mm-hmm. What does that look like and how do you guarantee to your um, financial institution customers mm-hmm. that you are doing just as thorough, if not more, of a thorough job than they are? So we've been through two audits. We passed them with flying colors, um, so much so that one of our lending institutions used us as a model for their other uh, fintech relationships. You need to do compliance and underwriting like Moment does. It's a huge compliment. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we look at our underwriting policies and compare them to the banks, the banks often tell us, you're, going, you're doing more than we are in some cases. Um, and it's a pretty simple process. The contemporary architecture you know, allows you to make investments, modern, modern contemporary investments, more quickly than a legacy institution possibly could. But we do inline fraud. Um, we do uh, send one-time passcodes to the phone. Fairly, fairly standard things today. Mm-hmm. All the PII is protected. And I won't get into too much detail, but how the actual application process is set up itself, there's a lot of fraud controls that we sort of employ operationally through logic. Because it's not good enough to just say, hey, fraud providers, this person never been a fraudster before. It's sure. more about this person is a fraudster. They know how to get past that. How do you put different blocks in the way that would prevent a fraudster but not a, not a good actor? Okay. Um, and in terms of the process, uh, you know, look, obviously, a, you know, a, a mortgage is a probably much higher dollar value than we're talking for. But anyone who has been through that process and that's their interaction with mm-hmm. a financial institution, you know, just reams of documents and it's very, very time consuming. What is the end user actually uploading and responsible for in this instance? Nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. So no okay. W twos. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nope. As of right now. So we're, going back to what I said earlier, we're in we're in the unsecured installment loans. So mm-hmm. the loans go from about three thousand thirty five hundred. Right now they they max out at fifty five thousand. We're bringing on a partner that allows us to go up to one hundred fifty thousand. Once we start securitizing assets, we start verifying income and some other things. Then the, the lenders are telling us they'll go well beyond five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So we'll get there. But today, because the loan sizes are a little bit lower risk, a little bit smaller. The, the merchant invites a consumer to a loan. The, the, the consumer must complete the application on the consumer's device. We track. We, we know if that's being if that's a true statement or not. Mm-hmm. And then based on the information they provide from their phone, it's a fairly standard consumer application process. That's all we need. And all the consents are taken electronically. So if it's, if it's unsecured, right, which means you know, there's no collateral behind it, mm-hmm. okay, there's really no recourse if it's not paid back, what's... I'm, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> what's our DQ? Well, yeah, right. What's the what's the, yeah, what's, what's, well, how do you protect downside? Um, we've been doing this. Most of our, um, the team that did the credit underwriting, they've been in the space for over 15 years. Um, before we even started Moment, most of us were in the fintech space. We have done 12 to $15 billion a year in consumer loans, so we're familiar with the space. You know, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not coming at this green, never had experience. Um, it really speaks a lot to our credit policy. So we'll talk about the credit pol- our approach to data and credit policy for just a moment. We often knew that when we talked about a lender and onboarding lenders, the credit policy, the loan officer, would be one of our most difficult conversations um, because of how we see data. We use a little bit of artificial intelligence, a little bit of machine learning to build the credit policy. It doesn't execute the credit policy. That's a very important perspective. It just informs us this is a good credit policy. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll A-B test our credit policy against our lenders. It grossly outperforms, and they subscribe. And the testament, the, the proof is in the pudding, our DQs are well below industry average. Okay. So, uh, because of who we choose to give credit to and how much credit we choose to give. Well, and, and so I guess that's what I'm getting at the who you choose to give credit to, right? So, is this we're what, just taking Experian and Equifax mm-hmm. data and things like that, looking at history of paying rent on time, paying credit cards on time, et cetera? That's a big part of it, yes. Okay. 
Okay. So sort of a, a little secret in the industry is, is a lot of, this is, this is becoming less true as the industry evolves. Um, most credit policies m- might be eight to 10 attributes. So mm-hmm. on a credit report, you have over 300 credit attributes that I, as a credit underwriter, for example, could say, I'm going to use these, this mix of attributes in this scorecard to approve. Um, a lot of lending institutes out there are only going to use between eight and 10 because that's all the human brain can really go in this complex waterfall. That's all I can understand. When you start using artificial intelligence machine learning, I can say, here's all 300 attributes. Sure. What's the combination? I'm not even going to say, is it, the, is it 50? Is it 100? Is it 10? You, you just tell me the combination of attributes that are most indicative of consumer payback. Mm. So we have a, a more intelligent credit policy. Uh, that's right. Okay. Because we're using more data largely. Uh, yeah. Um, Okay, so through the technology that you have built, essentially you can look at all these different attributes and whatever your secret sauce is inside the technology, that helps you know, basically um, protect against downside, protects against default, et cetera. That's right. Yeah, okay. So let's step back a little bit, okay? Talk to me about your background. Talk to me about um, how you got to a place where you had the idea for this company and you're now executing and, mm-hmm. you know, blown and going. Sure. Uh, so my career is largely serial entrepreneur. Like when I was in college, I was in the entrepreneurship program. Mm-hmm. I was recruited out of my fifth year to go help start a company. I was a co-founder of that company. We grew it for a year. It was, it was bought for a million and a half dollars. I went to the next company that the acquiring company was the CTO of them. <laughs> we sold for 17 million. So it's, you know, a history of this stuff. Yeah. I love the startups and I love being sort of the bridge between the business and the technology side, making sure we're delivering business value, problem solving and all that sort of thing. Um, a couple of years ago, in, in 2016, um, I was at a company called Green Sky, which a lot of us came from, and we were we were all kind of trying to to address market needs and market demands as we saw cropping up, and we just you know we just couldn't get the the momentum behind what we were trying to do. Sure, uh, we we left Green Sky. Um, we did most the founding team did some consulting work for a couple other fintechs across the country, and we, the, the, the same things kept coming up. It's not a contemporary architecture. The data model's a mess. They're not sure how to operate execute. There's no strategy behind it. And it was just, well, we know what the market gaps are. We've been here in the space for some of us five years, some of us 15 years, and the same patterns keep coming up. Let's just go build a company that can address those, those needs and those gaps directly. And I'm curious, we're uh, of the founding team, and of course I, I know Barclay, who's the CEO who's been on this show before, um, and is... Were you the only serial entrepreneur with a number of other first timers, or was the was 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 the entire team kind of used to the ups and downs of entrepreneurship? Um, it was a pretty good mix. Most of us okay. have been used to the ups and downs. Yes, because I would just imagine that uh, you know, obviously, different people have. Some people come to entrepreneurship because mm-hmm. they just cannot work for anyone else and they right. need that consistent excitement. Some people come to it somewhat begrudgingly because they just have an idea and no one's doing it. It's like, oh, fine. Okay, <laughs> I gotta go do fine. This. Right. right. Fine. Um, and, and those attitudes are very different. And obviously, I think that we in our, uh, it's, we have sort of this idea in our society of the entrepreneur as rock star, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's true at the natural conclusion. Okay, <laughs> but um, I think that anyone who's probably been in your shoes, you know, um, can talk about the many unglamorous, um, emotionally fraught, mm-hmm. mentally um, heartbreaking uh, situations involved with that. So, uh, what I'm getting at is, you know, sort of that the makeup of that team and the attitude that they have towards the. Um, adventure they're about yeah. to go on we were we were in a unique spot i mean yeah. most of us knew each other we'd work together we knew we could work together we built some cool things um either inside of professional life or even as a hobby mm-hmm. like park and i had a whole bunch of 
<laughs> Bitcoin miners. You know, we figured out how that worked and built that, that thing up kind of a little bit. So we, we had that privilege. A lot of entrepreneurs are like, I have an idea and I have not, the first person I call, I don't know who to call. It's going to be a stranger. Do I trust them? You know, how do I get to know them? So we've been through so much as a team and the team that we had together that were really close friends professionally, we had developed kind of a personal relationship too. We noticed we all had very complementary skill sets. Like Lena McDermott was there for um, Green Sky for a number of years. She's a great, she's an amazing operator, you know. And so, me as sort of the tech strategist and the overall corporate strategy, Barkley as a quant, well, we're, neither one of us are operators. Mm-hmm. So Lena was right there. Was like, I'd love to join you guys. I'd love to come in and help build this thing out. You know, it was just it was this really odd mix of unique people at the right place at the right time, willing to work together for a common goal. Yeah, that's that's exciting, and I imagine that um, as you. As you move from that core set of founders to a growing company mm-hmm. and you're hiring and you're staffing up, I'm very curious about how the relationship between all of the founders translates into the type of culture that you're building as this goes far beyond the originals mm-hmm. and it becomes something much greater mm-hmm. that can't necessarily rely on you and your your traits and your personality. Mm-hmm. It has to be instilled in the folks that you hire. Yep. Um, willful intent had a lot to do with it. Um, People ask us, why did you build Moment? There's sort of two major reasons. One is to go after the market gaps and the market needs and the opportunity, yeah, obviously, right? The other one was because we were determined as a group of professional friends to show the world that you can have a healthy culture and build a successful company at the same time. So from day one, we had culture as, as one of our key tenants, and we just focus on it pretty relentlessly. Every, every week we have a CT meeting. We talk some aspect about culture. Yeah. Are our people being coached? Are they learning training? Do they have career paths? You know, do we need to address someone who had an emotional outburst because they, you know, that's not part of culture? But we accept people's mistakes. Is are people are the engineers on the product side? Are they trying to succeed along with their failures along you know along the way because everyone's going to fail? Are they okay? Do they feel safe enough to try something that may fail so they can keep going because eventually you'll find that success? I think that that last point is a very important one um, because you know, look, I think there is a. There is a healthiness behind respect and deference for one's leaders, okay? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there has to be a place where everyone feels comfortable enough with each other mm-hmm. that they can have that failure mm-hmm. and they can be public about it and learn from it because um, it's really the only way that you get enough freedom to get the best out of people. Mm-hmm. If they always think that there's a little bit of a risk there, you know, it's that phrase, right? No one ever got uh, fired for hiring IBM. Right, right. Okay. Right, right. If 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 it's just the status quo, then you're never going to see really their true self, what they're capable of. And obviously, for a dynamic early stage company, that doesn't do anyone any good. No, it doesn't. And we we were also, you know, we model the behavior we expect of our of our teams. And so when we make failures, when we, when I make a mistake, then I'll go to the engineering team and say, you know, I had this harebrained idea about this architecture. It's grossly overcomplicated. We need to back this out. So we also admit to our mistakes to show them it's okay. We all make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. We appreciate the risk. We appreciate the ask. We also appreciate a very quick cleanup. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Sort of the follow through. Fail fast. Fail, fail fast and correct quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but take the risk. So have you always been an Atlanta operator or have you been all over the place? Um, primarily, I got my early career started in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Um, UAB has a great, kind of like ATDC, they have a very good entrepreneurship program, um, OADI. Mm-hmm. So I built a couple of companies out of there before moving over to Atlanta. Okay. Uh, so so you, you mentioned ATDC. Let's talk about ATDC and the ATVs of the world. I mm-hmm. think that you have association with both of them. Yep. We were at ATV during the early, early days, mm-hmm. um, right before we got into the ATDC uh, the uh, accelerator. Yeah. So, just tell me a little bit about your experience. It's been great. Um, the advisors and the introductions. It, it it comes with. It made our fundraising easier. I mean, our, 
I won't besmirch the strategy. We had a good strategy. We have a very good team. Getting into ATDC and having them as a brand associated with yours, especially as a startup in the VC community, means a lot. It goes a long way. It's not easy. It's not an easy program to get into. Do the work. You will receive way more benefit than it's than it's than the work it's costing you to get into the program and remain part of the, part of the program. The advisors are great. The introductions are great, and it it helped stamp sort of some approval, some sort of a. A weight. It's a it's a signifier, it's right? A signifier, it's it's pouring you. gasoline on the flame. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, we all, and this is a good thing, right? Atlanta, I think, has grown leaps and bounds um, in terms of the folks that are sticking around here from Georgia Tech and elsewhere, and actually mm-hmm. starting companies in this ecosystem, whereas you know maybe they weren't twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but that. Uh, the community is, I think, bombarded more and more by so many different new companies. And look, that's, that's a great thing. But to really cut through, you need those signifiers. You yep. need those letters or logos or whatever it might be that is immediately recognizable to someone that, you know, you have been, you have been ordained. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what it is about Atlanta, but when we talk about fintechs and fintech partnerships across the country – there are more people that seem to be doing, I don't know how to describe it, real work in Atlanta. Um, by that, I mean, one example I can give you is there's a bunch of fintechs out there that are, that are aggregators. They're like, I'm going to take a consumer application. I'm going to throw it blindly against a whole bunch of lending institutions and see what comes back. They're not doing any underwriting. They're not taking any risks. They're not adding any business value. But every company that we come across in Atlanta is like, no, we're not just, like we are talking about Move earlier, we're not just a payments provider. We're one of the top, we're one of the five payments providers riding directly on the rails in the back end. We're not just a third-party payments provider who's you're going to have to hop, jump, skip, and jump before you get to the, the rail. Atlanta seems to be unique in that, that regards, especially in the fintech and the banking space. They're doing real things. Well, they, they are, and I've always been curious as to why. Because, okay, there are some industries that you can point to where it makes sense. Like, why is Houston known, known for energy? Okay, well, they have tons right. of oil and natural oil and gas, gas reserves. Right okay, that, 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 that makes, makes sense. sense. There's a natural resource, okay? <clears throat> why has Atlanta become the transaction alley? Right. I mean, it's you could theoretically build your company anywhere. Right. Right. Okay. So why is there this um, conglomeration of these types of firms in Atlanta? You know, it's like uh, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell concept with the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Right. At did it just coincidence and now it's a thing? I I don't know. I'm curious your I'm thoughts. Not, I'm not sure. I feel like it's a little bit of both. It's like Georgia Tech's here. I, I can't. Kennesaw State is also here. We have a lot of great students coming out of that school as well. There's two two very good technical institutions, um, but there's a huge banking and finance center. It's not as big as New York. There's some other cities that may be bigger, but it's one of the biggest. It's like, you know, in commercial real estate, the, uh, we often talk about the 24-hour city versus the 18-hour city. Mm-hmm. Atlanta's on the, on the finance side is somewhere between that 8- and 24-hour city, which means there's more opportunity. If you're in New York, it's so stead, it's so entrenched. Let me go to go down to Atlanta, like we're saying, there's a lot of companies, there's more froth, there's more sure. opportunity yeah, but, and, and to I break th- through. Well, okay, and I, I, I would agree with that. I also think that you can say that about Atlanta in general, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, in that it is, I think, relatively easy. Mm-hmm. I, you know, look, assuming you have the right stuff and you're a person of integrity and you have the right technology and a good idea, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's relatively easy for someone who's got all the prerequisites mm-hmm you know, from an early age to kind of raise their hand and get involved. I think there are fewer barriers here, mm-hmm. whereas opposed to a place like um, a New York, yeah. as, as we as we just discussed. And I think that you could probably make that claim across all different types of industries. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, so I'm, I'm from here originally. I left and moved elsewhere and kind of came back and sort of like starting over. But it it felt 
it felt much easier, mm-hmm. right, um, to sort of raise my hand and get involved in this new version of Atlanta because there seemed to be, you know, uh, most people are from somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? You know, people are used to being the new kid, and I think that there's an attitude of pay it forward and, you mm-hmm. know, give you the benefit of the doubt. There is. We travel a lot um, for both our VC raises and our, you know, our general business. And Atlanta, Atlanta is an open city. It's not, it's not so, I don't know, mired in... The diversity is really good, and everyone's very accepting of the diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to go out and recruit. Depending on what I'm looking for, there's a huge variety of a well-diversity of applications from backgrounds to different industry experiences where someone, I was in banking, I'm trying to get into fintech, or I was on security for military to talk to somebody. I want to get, I'm going to go over to fintech. It's, there's so many intersections. It's a big enough city to where there's enough intersection to where you can always find someone with a, a near skill set that will add additional value than someone who's just been in your industry for you know, decades. Let's talk about recruiting. I think that's an interesting point, especially given the moment in time that we're in. Okay, so on the one hand, I mean, is this not like the weirdest economic moment that we've ever experienced? Right. So you know, you've got three and a half percent unemployment. Right. <clears throat> okay. So one would look at that, and I think say, well, you know, employees have a lot of power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially really good ones. And I think we've seen that over the past year or so. Um, in terms of just you know salary demands and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then you've got mounting layoffs, mm-hmm. okay? And I think we've only you know hit the tip of the iceberg there, yep. right? And I think some people are doing it. You know, some people were a little bit too fat to begin with, and some people are doing it because you know their business had a flaw they didn't realize, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. okay? And so then you just look at that and be like, well, but wait a second, but but look at all these really high level technology companies that are announcing layoffs. Does that put the power back in the employer's shoes? And I guess. Maybe power isn't necessarily the right topic to discuss, but more, are you able to find the people that you need to do what you want them to do? It's an interesting, to your point, I mean, it sort of come, comes up tangentially. If I can give any entrepreneur um, advice, don't start a company right before a pandemic hits. Because <laughs> we started in 2019, you know, right before the pandemic. Um, but what we're seeing nowadays is, yes, it's much harder to find the employees. Like, I'm, I'm thinking this will be able to fill a, a, a slot in four to six weeks. It's yeah. taking, you know, two to three months. But the person coming in is probably better than we could have found had it not been this way. And by that, I mean a lot of people who are jumping ship are like, I'm tired of being at a company. I've, I, I'm, I'm just a number. This, this is the most common complaint mm-hmm. we get in interviews. I'm just a number. I have to go into the office. You guys, you can you have a work from home or policy. As long as you're working, you're fine. And you, in the culture, going back to what we were talking about earlier, your culture permeates every, every conversation I've ever had. So we're finding the people that have those experience that don't want, that, that want to do something. I don't want to be a number. I don't want to come and have a nine to five job and collect a paycheck. I want to put my fingerprints on something. I want to be part of something that, that's growing. Well, I actually, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because what has concerned me over the past year and look, part of this is anecdotal, but part of it seems to be somewhat of a trend, is that, uh, look, I fault no one mm-hmm. for going for their highest economic value. Right. Okay? Right. You do what you need to do to support you and your family. However, I think that the trend seems to have been playing companies off each other to get the highest dollar value. Yeah. Okay? We've been, we've been victims of that. Right. And so, again, there, there's a time and place mm-hmm. for getting what you deserve. However, that is not sustainable long-term, I think, for society because if people are only going to companies based on um, your economics, the, your economics, 
how do you build a great company if no one actually cares about the stuff that goes on there? If right. they'll jump ship, that's not a way to build a great company. It's not a way to offer a good product and service to people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad to hear that you've got people that are coming and saying, look, okay, my economic value is important. However, um, I want to feel something. Mm-hmm. I want to get out of bed in the morning and feel something um, because that is a reason why people stay. That's right. Um, if, if someone feels that, okay, look, an extra 20 grand is nice, but if they see the long-term opportunity, mm-hmm. or I'm not matter. a number or my decisions aren't challenged at every, every week, or it's not a toxic culture, you know, yeah. it's worth so much more than an extra 10 or 20 grand a year. The point you're saying, we've had people come over and say, I'm making ungodly money at, at some huge company. I know you can't pay it. I'll take a twenty-five, thirty-five $35,000 pay cut yeah. just to come be a part of your team. That's great. Which is, yeah, which is great here. It, yes. means, it means people want meaning, you know? Right. Now, of course, it sounds like there are others where, you know, you fall victim to that, unfortunately. Yeah. It happens. And those, those were great. Like the craziest story, we were trying to find a recruiter, um, you know, recruiter in the Atlanta market, what that goes for. But she called us and said, Amazon offered me three, 325. I'm like, <laughs> You're a recruiter. Like, if you can get that. 325. Then please, you know, I, I can't in good conscience tell you to do anything but go take that. <laughs> Like, it's crazy. Some of the conversations we have where people are turning us down for more money, it's not like, oh, it, you, there's options, or oh, it's another 5000 or oh, they give me another week of... No, it's like six-figure-plus salary differences. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That's unsustainable. And it's not... We have that more than once. I'm, I'm just... I'm... That, I, I can... Oh, look, good for that person. Right, okay? right, exactly. But do you get to a point where... You let's say that I don't know in two or three years it's God you know I just really want to do something you know different something different mm-hmm. and there is it's not taking a twenty to thirty thousand dollar pay cut to do something different you know you've essentially boxed yourself in where few if any other companies can really pay that mm-hmm. right I'm sorry no offense to recruiters that's right, a, no. that's a ridiculous number <laughs> that's a crazy number <laughs> yeah but yeah like where do you go from there if you're used to if you if you adjust in a normal south in a normal market whatever your salary is typically one twenty five to one thirty yeah. someone offers you three hundred and you're going to adjust your life out of three hundred and then that mm-hmm. market crashes what do you do what do you do yeah yeah, yeah. all right well whatever hopefully you know have your bank account for now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. So we've we've talked about the product. We've talked about um, the unmet need in the market. What are you spending most of your time on um, based upon where you want this company to be in the next 12 to 18 months? What is the evolution mm-hmm. of Moment going forward? Um, so we're officially, the last board meeting um, sort of announced, we're no longer, I consider us no longer a startup. We're mm-hmm. officially in our growth phase. So growth phase is more about solidifying the things you've done. So we're doing a lot of sort of boring operational stuff. We're formalizing, we're adding a lot more formalization to our risk department, our risk mitigation. Um, we're doing more on the compliance formalization side, some, some kind of boring things to shore up. The future really what the future really holds for us is adding more financial products. That's what we're all really excited about. Yeah. So going into the secured space where we'll be securitizing um, different types of vehicles and different types of assets. And then beyond that, we have a couple of very large uh, networks that are going to bring us international. Um, so we have some very, very strong um, market opportunities that will bring us into Canada, Western Europe, Australia, Japan in the next probably 18 to 24 months. That's very cool. So going international. So international expansion, and additional products. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot to uh, keep you busy. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's been a great ride so far. So if I was to follow up with you in 18 months, mm-hmm. right, we'd be talking about Europe, we'd be talking about um, uh, additional products, mm-hmm. right? What do you think is on the horizon once you're able to accomplish those? 
Um, we'll probably start <laughs> maturing things on the merchant side. So a lot of our merchants, we have um, the platform is vertically agnostic. We're in home improvement and medical, elective medical today. Okay. A lot of those merchants um, are looking for SMB financing. So not just taking care of the consumers and offering consumer financial services or products, but maybe also going into the, the SMB and the corporate side. Mm. Do, do you have a lot of competitors in this space? Um, yes and no. It depends okay. on what you mean by competitor. Um, we're the only company approaching this market more like a MasterCard and Visa. Okay. We're trying to build the rails. Um, there's a bunch of companies that look similar to us, the Green Skies, the Service Finances, um, Affirm, Klarna, Upstart, things of those nature. Um, those are either what we consider the 2.0 players or the buy now, pay later players. Mm-hmm. And a lot of investors said, you know, this is back when 2019, when Klarna and Affirm were really growing. And they're like, why don't you go in the buy now, pay later space? It's like, it's just not our strategy. We're going after a slightly different consumer, consumer risk, but we're also going after it as owning the rails, as owning the network. We're the distribution for all these financial services. Yeah. So there's only two other companies really in the space that are going after it in a similar fashion. And they're just, they're not seeing the growth that we are. Uh, what what I find interesting about about your business is that you have you have two different audiences to serve, right? You have your financial partners, you have the end consumer, and um, <clears throat> I think it's fascinating from a marketing standpoint, but from a technology standpoint as well. You have to design technology that um, I imagine works a little bit differently yes. for each of those. Mm-hmm. And I am curious <laughs> how you balance those needs. They're very different. It's a it's a it's a great question a lot of people don't ask. I appreciate that's a really insightful question. Is, is we, we've, when we first architected the company from a technology from perspective, you know, through that technology, through that architecture, is always the business value. Mm-hmm. And so we built a single unified data model and a single unified platform that it en- enables different contexts. So if you're a merchant, you'll, it's the same model, that, same data model, same architecture that I as a consumer on, the same thing that a lender's on, but you only get the merchant view of the entirety of the platform. Mm-hmm. That was, that, that's a really key component. A lot, of, a lot of other competitors will say, well, here's the loan origination system completely separately. Here's the loan management system completely separately. Here's a chunk of it that the merchants see. Here's a separate chunk that the lenders see. Tying all that stuff back together, growing into new markets, growing into new verticals, it's a very difficult thing to do if that's your approach. The flip side is all the challenges front-loaded. If we can figure out how to build this architecture, we can make the data model extensible, we can add different verticals, different lenders, we can provide different contexts, mm-hmm. then the foundation set and you can, you can grow. Sure, okay, that, that makes sense. But I imagine, um, well, I am curious, right? When you're looking for technology talent, okay, mm-hmm. <clears throat> are you looking for folks that have had experience with sort of, I don't know, serving different masters um, <laughs> in terms of the technology? Or is it just, look, if you're a skilled technician, if you're a good learner, you're going to be able to figure this out. A little bit more the latter. I mean, yeah. we, we spend a lot of time on documentation. So mm-hmm. when, our, when our lead engineers come in, they're, they're, they almost have tears in their eyes. I'm like, oh my, oh my God, you guys documented everything. Like, I can see what it is. I know, you know I understand it. I can start immediately adding value. Yeah. So it's a little bit more the latter than the former. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, look, this is, uh, you guys are, I think, doing quite well. It's, I, I suggest that anyone who is listening to this show go back and uh, listen to the show with uh, Barkley Keith. Um, at that point, the company was called Artist Technologies. Yep. Um, but really great progression. <laughs> it's wonderful to hear that you guys are doing well. And anyone who's listening, if they want to learn more, mm-hmm. how do they contact you? How do they learn more about sure. Moment? Just head over to moment.com, M O M N T.com. Um, or and there's a lot of contact us forms out there that we're always watching that goes straight to our internal people. Fantastic. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Joe, for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs>